Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 650 with Chris Croft. We've got him back, and that's Chris Croft, not to be confused with Chris Cross, although he might make you jump, jump with happiness at work because Chris, who's done a lot of research and thinking and sharing on the topic of happiness at work, is generously sharing with us his top 10 tips curated from a whole lot of work and research and teaching and sharing and work with people. So we just get the goods, the top 10. How efficient. So you'll learn one, the myths about happiness at work. Two, how to rewire your brain to choose happiness. And three, the affirmation you may wish to add to your morning. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F650. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP650. If you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to get the gold nugget email for summary insights from Chris and a quick write-up, as well as access to the vaults of all of those summary write-ups. That's the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Chris's story. Chris is one of the top authors on LinkedIn Learning with 34 video courses recorded during 11 visits to LA on subjects including project management, time management, process improvement, assertiveness, surviving organizational change, and happiness. With over 25,000 views a day and over 11 million views in total, his happiness course is one of the most viewed happiness courses in the world with nearly a million views on lynda.com and LinkedIn Learning. It's 52 practical things you can do to increase your happiness, and we're getting in the top 10. He's published 15 books, including The Big Book of Happiness, and has produced a number of free apps, including Jobs to Do and Daily Happiness Tips. His free monthly email tips are sent to 20,000 people over at Free Management Tips. That's hyphens, free hyphen management hyphen tips.co.uk. That's right. He's a Brit, and his voice is lovely to hear. It's like butter in a good way. Big thanks to Chris for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Chris. Chris, welcome back to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I obviously got away with it last time, so that's great to know, Pete. Oh, yes. Well, I'm excited to dig in again. And uh, to kick it off, I want to hear about you are a saxophone lover. I played the saxophone back in the day. What's the story? Yeah, somebody said to me once, the definition of a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the saxophone but doesn't. <laughs> and uh, I think that's probably pretty good. I do. I, I like listening to it. Um, things like people like John Coltrane and Bruce Springsteen's fantastic sax player who died recently, Clarence Clemens. 
So I love listening to it, but I do play it as well in rock and jazz bands. But I don't claim to be very good, but I find it very therapeutic. It makes me happy to play very loudly, just to blast away. I, I, I tell people I'm the Jimi Hendrix of the sax. <laughs> but of course, I'm nowhere near as good as him. But any, playing any instrument, I think, is a source of happiness. It's creative and you get to show off. So, yeah, what's not to like? Well, happiness, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. Well done. Happiness at work. You know a thing or two about it. Can you maybe first give us the lay of the land? To what extent are professionals in general happy at work? Can you illustrate uh, the, the state of affairs there? Yeah, most people are not very happy at work. When they're asked their biggest source of unhappiness, it's usually their boss or their job. And happiness at work is not really treated very seriously by most organizations. They think of it as a bit of a luxury. They, they understand motivation, which is sort of linked a bit to happiness. And in fact, when Maslow was creating his hierarchy of needs, he was actually studying happiness, not motivation. So he found that happiness required things like security and social links and being valued and all those sorts of things. And that was sort of twisted into motivation, just you know, how to get people to work harder. But, but there is a link between happiness and how hard people work. And I saw some research that said that unhappy people tend to be about 50% engaged with their jobs, whereas happy people are 80% engaged. So they, they spend more time working and they work harder if they're happy. But it's hard to untangle cause and effect because it could be if you love your job, then you're happier um, and, and then you work harder. But it could be if you work harder, that makes you happier. And, you know, it's, it's hard to unpick the whole thing. But certainly if there are things you can do to make your employees happier, you'll get more out of them and you'll make more profit. So why don't organizations think more about happiness at work? Mm -hmm. Well, so happy as a work, I think we'd, we'd like some more of it just in and of itself and for the uh, performance productivity boost that it generates. Are there any sort of misconceptions associated with, you know, people think this makes them happy or unhappy at work, but really, uh, that's not the case. Well, um, <laughs> the big one is money. All right. The huge one is money. And there's been a lot of research done into happiness related to money. And certainly below a certain point, money is related to happiness. You know, if you're so short of money that you're worrying about where your next meal is going to come from or whatever, then clearly happiness is reduced by not enough money. But when you get to a certain point, it, it really starts to level out. And eventually you get to a point where more money doesn't make you any happier. And it's interesting because we put so much effort into earning more money. We do jobs that we don't like because they're better paid. You know, we sort of sacrifice lots of time, personal life, even relationships and marriages and things get sacrificed in order to make more money. And, and all the research says that more money isn't going to make you happy. And I know everyone's listening to this thinking, yeah, well, it would make me happy. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, you know, if you look back over the jobs you've done in the past, I mean, if you've had a steadily increasing income as your career has gone on, then it's hard to know whether it's made you happier. But if you've had a career like mine, where the money's gone up and down, and I've done all kinds of different things. Looking back, the times I've been happiest are when I was earning very little money. And, you know, some of the jobs where I've earned quite a lot were really stressful, and I wasn't that happy. And my theory about why this is true is I do think money makes you a little bit happier. You know, if you earn twice as much and you spent twice as much on your car and the wine you drink and things, 
I think you would be 10% happier. But the problem is that you pay a 20% price to earn that money. You know, to earn more money. Why would somebody pay you more money? And there's got to be something wrong with the job that they're paying you to do. They have to pay you more in order to get you to do it. And it's usually stress or working longer hours or a lot of travel. And so, yes, the money makes you slightly happier, but the price you pay to earn that money outweighs the gain that you get. But that's good news because it means we don't have to search after money at work. We can think about doing a job that we're going to enjoy. You can start thinking about work that's going to be satisfying and make a difference and all of those things. And, and that's good news, I think, in, in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'm curious, about, and you mentioned the after a point, the incremental happiness for extra money levels off. I, I've seen some studies on that. Do you have a sense for what that point is? Like dollar terms? Yeah, I saw one and it said $60,000. And I remember being a bit disappointed because I hoped it would level off at like 20 or 30 because then I could say to pretty much everybody, don't look for more money. But of course, a lot of people don't earn 60,000. And of course, it, it's personal. So for some people, it may level off at 40 or $50,000. Um, and a lot of people are at that kind of point there. And even at 30 or 40,000, it's leveling off fast. So if you can earn a whole load more, it won't make much difference to your happiness. You know, it's only, it's completely level above 60. That's the numbers I saw. But I think it varies depending on the country and your personality. And there's a lot of factors going on in there. And maybe your zip code and size of family and, and such. Yeah, but certainly it's not, you know, it's not millions. You know, it's not the, your second million doesn't make you happier, although I'm sure that's true. Uh, it levels off a lot sooner than that. So don't chase after the money. That's not going to make you happy. But lots of things can. And that's what I've got some tips for you in this, in this podcast. I've got some, some practical things people really can do to get more happiness at work. Well, lay it on us. What, what, what do you think are sort of really the, the big levers, the things that make all the difference? Yeah. So I've got, a, I've got a list of 10 here and I'm planning we can zoom through them. They're not really in any particular order. And I think different ones will work for different people. My first one is a really quick one, which is projects. And all the people who know me will laugh when I say projects because I am quite obsessed with Gantt charts and project management and things. But it's not project management that makes you happy, but it's having a project. It's a feeling of moving towards a worthwhile objective. And any project that you're working towards gives you a nice feeling of progress and that, you know, your life isn't being wasted. And we've probably all had the feeling of driving home at the end of a day thinking, where has that day gone? You know, I've achieved nothing today. But if you're working on a project, you, you have that feeling of moving forwards and you have that feeling of a worthwhile objective. So the first thing you can do at work is make sure you're involved in a project, not just processes, which are the same every day, but a project, something that's going to take a few months or a year where you're working on something big. And I think it probably has an extra spin-off because you're in a team, you're working with people in a team, and that's always good as well. That's sort of a secondary benefit. And so when you say, it, it, it sounds like when you say projects, I'm like, hey, I got, I got too many projects and that doesn't, isn't doing it for me. It sounds like it's sort of like, it's something you can own and observe your efforts are creating improvement advancement, like a house you can see. Or, I mean, maybe, I don't know, sales numbers. But it could be a website. It could be a, an exhibition, you know, that's going to happen. It could be a piece of software. It could be an app that you're working on. But something where you're going to get closure at the end and you're going to think, I did that. Or, you know, I was involved in that and there it is. That's the thing. 
And yeah, you don't want to have too many projects. I mean, stress is bad, but a lot of people are really stressed out by the processes. For example, I used to run factories for a living before I escaped. That's quite a tough job to do. And we were just churning out stuff and we were trying to churn out 1% more stuff every month. And it was just stressful and you just felt like you were running to stand still. But every now and then there'd be a, a project and we would you know, get a new machine installed or extend the factory or, or start making a new product. And that was great because we could get our teeth into something new. And then after possibly a few months, there it would be working, done. And it was the projects that I used to enjoy. And the projects were a little bit stressful because there was often a deadline, but it felt good when you finished them. Yeah, that's a great distinction with the, the manufacturing world because it's sort of like, in a way, you at the end of each day, the, hey, there's a, t there's a warehouse full of stuff that I, I contributed to. But it's sort of like, but that was happening before I got here and it will happen after I got here. And, and I see it every day. So it's not distinctive in terms of that's, that's mine. That's right. Yeah, I actually, I really think ownership is important. And that's actually part of my second one I've got here, actually. But to have ownership of something and... Even ownership of part of a process would, would be fine. You know, even if you were just sweeping the streets, let's say, if it was your street and you always swept the same street and you could take pride in it, then that would increase your happiness. You know, so I, I think ownership of anything is good, but you're right. Ownership of projects is the best thing to have because you don't have that futile feeling of doing it over and over again, Groundhog Day. But my, my second tip with ownership as part of it is to work hard. And I know this sounds like an odd thing and people may think I've been put up to saying this by some sinister boss behind the scenes somewhere. But actually, if you work hard, you'll be happier. And I know people whose job it is all day just to skive and do the minimum. They've set themselves the challenge of doing the minimum amount of work. And I can still remember I got my daughter a, a work placement at a garden center when she was about 18. And at lunchtime, she said everyone at the garden centre, when they had their half hour for lunch, they all went into the meal room and they just sat there and either fell asleep or just sort of stared at the wall and just did nothing for half an hour. And she said, I was totally bored. So I went out and volunteered where I could help on the till. And was there anything, some plants that needed repotting or something? And they all thought she was mad to volunteer to work. But she said, what's the point of just sitting there? You know, it's not going to make you happy in the end because you're just not achieving anything. And deep down, part of you knows you're wasting your life. So I actually think having decided to do a particular job for a particular wage, having decided to do that job, you might as well work as hard as you can and absolutely do the best you can. And people have said to me, oh, it's different for you, Chris, because you're self-employed. You're working for yourself. But everybody's self-employed in a way. And, you know, you've decided to turn up to work today and sell your time for money. And you might as well do a job that you can be proud of. And I think that then means you've got to find a job that you believe in. Because it's much easier to work hard at something you do believe is making a difference. Mm -hmm. And before we dig into that one, when it comes to hard work, I mean, it sounds like... Part of it is that it's, I don't know if you honest work in terms of like your your really doing some stuff as opposed to just chilling out or trying to dodge or, or, or staring at a wall. So it sounds like it, it's a matter of, of focus or kind of really plugging into it uh, as opposed to sheer number of hours. Yeah. yeah, it's not the hours at all. No. In fact, don't work long hours because that'll make you less happy. 
And in fact, there's been research that shows that every half hour that you commute takes 10% off your happiness. So half an hour each way, that is. And if you take an hour to get to work and an hour to get home, that's two half an hours. That's 20% off your happiness of your whole life. So, you know, working longer hours is a really bad idea. But when you're at work, you should absolutely do the best you can, best quality, but also put maximum effort in. And the time will go quicker. You'll feel happier. The other customers will be happier and they'll give you a better response back to you. And a sort of little subset of that is to try to evolve the job, evolve it towards what you like. So if there are, if there's 10% of your job you really love and 10% that you just don't like at all, say to your boss when you get your appraisal, or if you don't have appraisals, just say anyway to your boss, I'd like to do more of this. I'd like to spend more time directly with customers or I'd like to spend more time coding or whatever. And they'll go, yeah, well, that's great. You know, I was looking for somebody who wanted to do that. And you can move your job towards the stuff you like and away from the stuff you don't like. And even if you only move it 10%, after you know, three or four years, you can have really transformed what your job is like. And you can actively influence what your job consists of. And most managers are delighted when their employees say, I'd like to do more of this and less of this. And, you know, sometimes there's unpleasant work that has to be done by somebody and they say, well, look, sorry, you've got to do that. But quite often there's some other crazy person who wants to do the bit you don't like. So you say, oh, I don't want to do the filing. There's somebody else who'd probably love to do filing. So win-win. So it's to think about what your ideal job would be like and then influence your boss to just slowly edge it towards that. And then it'll be easier to work with your heart and soul into whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. All right. So just as simple as asking, just like that. I think so. I mean, if, if, if your boss isn't interested in your happiness, then, you know, you can start to think about whether you want to do something else and vote with your feet. Uh, but it's definitely worth a try. And, and I think most bosses are pretty amenable to being asked about that kind of thing. We're not asking for everything to be totally different. We just want to do a bit more of that instead of a bit of this and just evolve it towards in that direction. All right. So that's my second of my, God, 10 sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Although some of these are shorter. Shall I go on to number three? Sure. Creativity. So we get happiness from creativity. And we were talking about the saxophone earlier. And one of the great things about music is that it's a chance to be creative. And actually, funny enough, in the band I'm in, sometimes they give me a fixed line they want me to play. Can you play this riff all the way through the chorus? Or so? And I'm, I'm thinking, well, yes, I can play that, but it's boring. And even if it's a really good riff and it's better than anything I could think of, I still want to play my own. I like my own better and I want to vary it. And so there's something in us that makes us want to be creative. And I would say, even if you're not very good at something, do it anyway. You know, if, even if you're not very good at playing an instrument, play it. Or if you write poetry, even if it's not very good poetry or art, just do some paintings, you know. But once you get into management, then creativity becomes really important. I think it's probably the most important thing a manager can do, actually, is to be creative. Because if you've got a process you follow as a manager, then what's the point of you? Because anybody could follow that process. You could just get anybody, any old person in, and they could just, you know, if this problem happens, do that. If the customer's unhappy, give them a refund or whatever. So the purpose of management is to think about how to improve things. And that's creative. So you need to find a job that's creative and find creative parts within your job and, and do as much of that as you can because creativity is a big source of happiness. And I think we talked about projects earlier and I think projects have a creative element always, don't they? Because they're always to do with doing something new. 
So creativity, that's the next thing to think about. Certainly, yeah. I hear you that it's it's not purely about sort of, you know, art, music, creativity. I guess the core of it is you are inventing or putting something into existence out of you. Yeah. I mean, where does creativity come from? I mean, there's a question. And by the way, never say, oh, I'm not, I'm not creative. I can't do it. Because everybody is. Everybody can be. So you must never just give up and think, oh, I'm not a creative person. I'm just not going to do that. Because you can do it. And with practice, you can, and with nurturing and a good boss, because you don't want a boss who just tramples on your ideas. Oh, that'll never work. You know, and look at kids. I mean, kids are always really creative, aren't they? So we're all born with creativity and you can see it in kids. Kids are just always inventing stuff, aren't they? And imagining, you know, this, this stick is actually an aeroplane and all that. And so we've all got creativity within us and you can rekindle it and it'll make you happier if you can use it. All right. What's next? What's next is learning. And I like asking people, how long could you do a job for if you weren't learning anything new? You know, if it was quite easy and was quite well paid and you were good at it, you know, how long could you do that for? And if answers vary from, you know, a couple of weeks to a year or whatever. I worked part of my apprenticeship when I was an engineer. I had to make washers on a lathe and you would make, you know, 10,000 in a day. And I had to work there for six weeks as just part of my apprenticeship. And it just drove me absolutely mad. I couldn't stand it. You know, within a week, I had become quite good at making washers. And, you know, I'd made, f I don't know, 50,000 by then. And after two weeks, I was just climbing the walls. I it was so boring. And I tried stacking them in pyramids and trying to calculate how many were in the pyramid and how many seconds till I could have a cup of tea at 10 o'clock. And, you know, could just keep your brain going. And I think, you know, we all have a built-in need to keep learning because that's going to be a survival quality, isn't it? Suppose you were making podcasts, for example. And, but if you get bored with making podcasts, if that day ever came, then you've got to do something else. And it won't be as obvious as the washers, but there will be a point where you just think, I'm just not, I'm just not feeling it anymore, you know? It's just yet another guest. And uh, I just go, oh, how interesting after each thing he says. And mm -hmm. I know you're not there, Pete. <laughs> but you know what I mean? And so, and funny enough, I mean, I've been doing training courses for years and I wondered at what point would I get bored with training people, teaching people project management or something? And the answer is I've never got bored because the groups are different every time. And also I learn stuff every time from the audience. And so you have to, you have to keep learning. And if you get to a point where you're not learning, then you've got to go up a level or go sideways, volunteer to do something different, you know, just find something else where you're going to keep on learning. And I think it's easy to avoid the effort of learning and oh, I can't be bothered to learn something new. And I have found if you move somebody to a new job, they go, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll have to learn new stuff. But once they start learning it, they love it. So I think and, and of course, learning allows you to be creative as well, because it just gives you more ideas you can use. There's a link there, isn't there? I'm sure between learning new skills and, and being creative. So, so learning is something that anyone can do. You can volunteer to go on training courses. Your company is bound to have training going on. So just volunteer to go on the next course and learn something that you just don't even think you need, like project management or assertiveness or, you know, anything, Excel, you know, and just volunteer and go and learn something. And I bet you, you feel good when you're doing it. So learning is number four on my list of easy ways to increase your happiness. All right. Well, I, I'm convinced. And number five? 
Number five is to come out of your comfort zone. And this follows on a bit from learning, but to come out of your comfort zone and push yourself, volunteer for some things that are a bit scary. Maybe they want someone to give a talk at a conference um, or maybe they want somebody to, you know, open a new office in Cincinnati or something. And just put your hand up and say, I'll do that. And afterwards you're thinking, oh God, why have I volunteered for that? But just push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. Now, ideally, you'd have a boss who would do that, would encourage you to gradually move on up and not, not give you huge, scary things, but just um, things that are a little bit beyond what you normally do. So you just keep expanding your comfort zone. And the reason this increases our happiness, of course, is uh, because we get achievement. Because, you know, we get a bit of an adrenaline rush at the time. Oh, I've got to give a talk to a conference. And then afterwards, it's like, yeah, I did it. I feel good. And you've increased your skills. You've learned some things as well. So volunteer. It's a bit counterintuitive because we don't think it's going to make us happy. But actually, it does. And there's that great sort of quote which says, we only regret the things that we didn't do. So if you do come out of your comfort zone, you won't regret it. It'll lead to something or other. And even if it ends up being a bit different to your thought, how you thought and turns out to being tougher, you know, you, you'll look back and think, I'm glad I did that. So I, I don't think you should do things that are really stupid at work, but things that are just a little bit beyond what you would normally do, you know, and obviously you can do that conference talk. Of course you can. All right. Uh, I'm with you. And so I guess I wonder, do you have any pro tips with regard to, what is a risk worth taking versus it's too risky? Ooh, I don't know. I think, I don't think there's a rule for that because I think everyone's going to be different. I mean, I think you want it to be kind of 10% more difficult than what you normally do and not twice as difficult. I guess you can look at the, how big will the downside be? I mean, you know, when you do risk analysis, you look at the probability of it going wrong and how bad it will be, don't you? And, and you can weigh up the upside and how likely that is and the downside and how likely that is. But I think I would mainly focus on, you know, will you die if it goes wrong? So, you know, if, if you're thinking of giving a talk at a conference, what's the worst that's going to happen is your talk's going to be really boring and some people are going to go to sleep, you know, because they're not going to throw things at you or you're not going to get fired. So that absolutely is a risk worth taking. And so I think, you know, assess how likely it is to go really badly and how bad would it be. And quite often when you start thinking about what's the worst that could happen, it's actually not that bad. You know, we mostly have fear of looking bad in front of other people. And that's just not a problem, really. So um, that's I think that's what I would do. I think that's probably how I would assess risk. All right. And what's next? Well, number six, we're on to the second half now. I'm really interested by this one because this one says that... When you're thinking about what makes you happy, your brain doesn't know what's good for you. This is based on some research by somebody called Sonia Lubomirsky, who I'm a big fan of. I think her research is fascinating. I think she's great. They found that our brain doesn't know what's, what, what will make us happy. And we've already said that, you know, we think money will make us happy and it doesn't. And, you know, how can your brain be wrong? And the reason is because we're really still Stone Age people. We, our brains are, are Stone Age so, for example, we have certain rules programmed in, like, for example, eat the maximum amount of food while it's there, you know, because we think that will make us happy. Because, you know, in the Stone Age, if there was a dead dinosaur, you had to eat it as quickly as you could or whatever. And then we have other simple rules like 
laziness is more efficient, you know. And, and yet in real life, laziness doesn't make you happy. You just underachieve and feel bad. And yet, you know, we think that if we do nothing all weekend and just read the paper and, you know, drink some alcohol at lunchtime and fall asleep in the afternoon in front of the TV, that that will somehow make us happy. But actually, you look back and you think that was, it wasn't a great weekend, really. And then our brain um, tends to focus on problems, you know, because if you're trying to survive in the jungle, you're always thinking, is that a tiger over there? What's that? Why is that there? I haven't seen that before. So we tend to be quite negative and that makes us unhappy in the modern world where in the modern world, there aren't that many things to be frightened of. And yet we still focus on the negative things. We watch the news. We want to know all the bad news that's happening around the country and we focus on the bad news. And that's a survival thing that is now out of date. And the final thing that our brain does that's bad is it drifts away from the present. So it, it frets about the future. It worries about the future, what's coming up, even though it can't do anything about it. And it goes back to the past and it sort of thinks, oh, if only that hadn't happened. And I don't wish that wasn't like that. And sometimes it thinks the past was great. If only I could go back to the past. But of course, you can't change the past. So our brain is obsessed with the past and the future, even though that isn't where happiness lies, because happiness is only in the present. And you can only be happy when you're living in the present. And that's why we're happiest when we do things that absorb us completely in the present. So if you're doing something, it's called being in flow. If you're doing something where you're really concentrating on doing it, and it might be, you know, say paddling a canoe or something, and you're really concentrating on the canoe and the balance and the water and you're doing, and you're just, you forget everything else. And so our brain is, is not our friend. And so number six really is to say, don't trust your brain. Don't think, well, I'm sure I must know best for myself. But, you know, to actively take actions that go against what your inner nature is telling you. And, you know, don't be lazy. Don't think that money will make you happy. Don't think that eating loads of food will make you happy. Don't take the easiest path. One of my favorite books is The Road Less Traveled. And the road that's less traveled is the high road, the hard road. And he says in there that laziness is the biggest problem. Of, he, he says that's the root of everything, actually, is laziness. And, you know, why would we, we be lazy? And the answer is, in the Stone Age, when we were short of energy, short of food uh, and warmth, we had to be really economical. But now, if we're not careful, we can just lounge around all day, and we mustn't. So don't trust your brain is, is number six. Yeah, and, and I think that hard work piece, that, that's sort of, I think, why that helps is because you're not able to be thinking about other things at the same time when you're working hard. And, and thusly, you are engaged in the thing. You're in the flow. So that I dig that. Well, well, just to accelerate a smidge, could you give us seven, eight, nine, and ten in a sentence or two each, and then maybe we'll dig into one of them. Okay. Well, number seven it is a biggie, but we can dig into it, is to, um, you can be happier by getting rid of your negative emotions. Because your negative emotions, whether it's sort of frustration and anger or sorrow, regret, guilt, worry, you're actually choosing all of those negative emotions. Your brain is choosing those for you. Um, and you're choosing them because you think you get a payoff. You think that worry will make you perform better, but actually it's a substitute for planning. And you think that, you know, getting frustrated will make things go quicker, but actually you just do things worse and you, and you end up taking longer. And so negative emotions are always unhelpful and you're choosing them and you can therefore not choose them. And you may think, well, I can't choose my emotions. They just well up from within. 
And they do well up, but you can choose whether to give them house room or not. You can choose whether to fan the flames and think, yeah, God, that guy did it, is annoying at that meeting. Or you can think, I'm not going to get annoyed with him. He means well, it doesn't matter, it's no point. So, so number seven is you choose your emotions and you can choose not to have negative emotions. Number eight is to not be focused completely on achievement, but don't forget enjoyment at work. A lot of people think that enjoyment is for outside work and then achievement is for work and that's the split. But actually you should enjoy your work as well. And so it's worth thinking about what would enjoyable work look like, you know, have goals for that. If, you know, if you think that you would enjoy going out to visit customers, have that as a goal at work. I want to find a way to get into doing that somehow. And it might be the 10% evolving of your job, but it might be to just go to a whole different department and say, I'd like to work here. I mean, I don't know. So think about what you would enjoy at work and have some goals for enjoyment at work. And linked to that is self-talk, to say to yourself, I love my work. So as you drive to work, don't be thinking or even saying out loud, oh, not work again, I hate my work. Oh, I bet it's gonna be awful today. It's the sales meeting, that's always awful. You know. But instead, say, I love my work, it's great. And the first few times you'll say that, you'll think you've gone mad and don't let anybody else hear you because they'll think you've gone mad. But it becomes true surprisingly quickly because your brain is really quite malleable. And if you say, I love my work, I really do. I love it. And by the way, you have to say it like you mean it. You mustn't just go, I love my work. That won't work. You have to say, I really do love my work. And it will become true. Number nine is to help other people. And this again, this is a quick, a quick one to explain. But take every chance you get to help other people at work and outside work, of course. Because not only does that make them happier, but it makes you happier as well. For some reason, we are wired to help other people. And you'll know this if you've traveled abroad, if your car's broken down, well, anywhere, people will help. They're just, well, people help. They love helping. So if you help other people, you get kind of a triple win because you feel good and they feel good. And then later, they're more likely to help you as well. So helping other people is one of those things which... A lot of people don't do, but you absolutely should take every chance. My last one, number 10, is you can choose to set the temperature in every encounter you have with people. You can consciously be nice or not nice. And why would you not be nice with, with everyone that you deal with and just be the ni nicest person? A very quick story about this. I was doing a customer care course a while ago and there was a guy who was the, he was actually the carpenter. He used to fix people's desks and, and doors and things. And he said, well, I'm only nice if they give me tea. When I'm working on a job in someone's office, if they give me a cup of tea, I'll be nice, but otherwise they can get stuffed. And um, I said to him, how often do you get tea? <laughs> and he said, oh, about one time in 10. <laughs> so I said, okay, so nine times out of 10, you're not nice. And he said, well, no, but they don't deserve it. And I said, but what if you set the temperature and went in really nice every time? You'd be more likely to get tea. You'd, you'd probably get tea half the time. You'd probably get five times as much tea, which clearly is your objective in life. <laughs> you know? and, and he said, well, yeah, but if I was nice 10 times and I got tea five times, that means I would have wasted half of the times. You know, I'd have wasted being nice half of the time. And I was like, yeah, but it doesn't cost you anything to be nice. And you're going to get five times. He was going, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Not unless I know they're going to be nice. I'm not going to do it. And I'm just thinking, 
what can you do with a guy like that? You know, so you, you put it out there and be the first one to put it out there. And there's a little circle called do, get, feel. So what you do affects what you get. And what you get affects how you feel. And then how you feel affects what you do. So, you know, if you're a bit lazy and you do the, you know, you sort of do the minimum, then what you'll get is sort of, you know, hassle from your boss and hassle from your customers. And then you'll feel unhappy about your work. And then what you'll do is even less work. And you can break that circle by thinking, no, I'm going to, even if my boss is maybe not treating me that well, I'm going to do the best job I can. Because then you'll get better results and you'll feel better about it and you'll be in the good circle. And you might even win over your boss. But in a way, who cares what your boss says? Do it for yourself and do it for your customers to an extent too. But mainly do it for yourself because you'll enjoy the work more. You know, if you're nice to people, you'll win in the end. So that's number 10. Set the temperature in every interaction that you have. Well, well, I appreciate this rundown. And I guess I'm thinking, you mentioned get rid of negative emotions. Is, is there anything else that you think we should stop doing? Like uh, there's a number of, of things here that we should, you know, make an effort to to do and to pursue. What are some things we should just cut out? The first thing that springs to mind actually for me is comparison and competition, which are related. Because comparing yourself with other people is, is a road to nowhere. You know, there's always somebody who's going to be more successful or richer or a higher achiever than you are. And if you compare yourself with people like that, it's just going to make you unhappy. And if you try to compete with colleagues, it's the complete opposite of helping them. So I really like the idea of the abundance mentality. If you help somebody else, they'll help you and you'll both gain. And uh, funnily enough, I, I visited a friend of mine a while ago and he's got this great big house and it's on the edge of London. It's beautiful. And later on, I said to him, so you've, you know, you've done really well in life, haven't you? I mean, you've achieved. And he said, no, he said, I don't feel I've proved myself at all. And I said, but you've got a house that's worth five stroke six million pounds. And he said, yeah, but my brother has got a house that's worth 20 million. His brother's the chief exec of Accenture. Uh, and I said, yeah, but why compare yourself with him? Of all the people you could pick, you know, why do you compare yourself with me? Because my house is only worth about half a million. And he said, you, <laughs> he looked at me and he went, you, why would I compare myself with you? And the answer is to make yourself feel better. Um, but it was really interesting that he felt it was productive to compare himself with somebody on the level above. And uh, yeah, that might pull him up, but will it, or will it just make him feel bad about himself? You know? So I think comparing and competing are really unhealthy and just do it for yourself. If you're a salesperson, don't, you don't have to be the number one salesperson. Just feel good about every deal that you get and feel good about the fact you've helped the customer and, you know, feel good that you're getting better at selling and you've learned some new techniques, but don't start thinking, oh, that person sold more than me and oh, that person earned more bonus than me. Just feel good about the amount of bonus that you've got. So I think that's definitely something to stop doing is comparing and competing. All right. Thank you. Well, now let's hear some of your favorite things. Can you tell us a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring. Yeah, I've got two happiness related quotes I really like. The first one is from Albert Schweitzer. And he said, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. And so if you love what you're doing, you will be successful. The other quote I like is totally different. And it just says that allowing yourself to feel hate is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And how about a favorite book? Well, 
If I was a real egotist, I would say my big book of happiness isn't a bad place to start. But there is a book that's better than mine, and it is The How of Happiness by Sonia Lubomirsky. The How of Happiness. I, I really think she's nailed it. All right. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that quote it back to you a lot? I think it's probably that you choose your negative emotions. People are always fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Chriscroft.com. Just have go to my website. I'm, I'm always putting stuff on my blog. And from my blog, you can get my tip of the month, which is a free email I send out every month. I'm on YouTube as well and, and things, but chriscroft.com would be the starting place. All right. Not to be confused with Chris Cross. Yes, that bass player. I do get addressed. Quite often I get letters to Mr. Cross, but it doesn't make me angry because angry is a negative emotion and I'm not going to go for that. You're not cross about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it, is it? <laughs> and do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think the easiest call to action is probably start a project. Yeah, you know, what are you going to do? What projects have you got on the go? But uh, if you've already got a project, then my sort of fallback call to action would be learning. What have you learned recently? You know, how are you going to improve? Because all you've got is what's between your ears, really. You know, what's in your head is that's your main tool nowadays, isn't it, for earning your living? And you've got to keep improving your ticket. They're easy things you can do, and they will lead to other things. So, you know, make a start with, with a bit of learning and, and some sort of reasonably ambitious project that give you a sense of achievement. All right. Well, Chris, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of luck and happiness in your adventures. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me again. And uh, I really hope it makes a difference to people listening. I really loved a lot of what Chris had to say, in particular, that point about choosing happiness. I've been doing some real thinking about this lately, and I think it's dead on because sometimes it feels like your emotions are not so much a choice because they just sort of happen. But I had a little bit of an epiphany recently, and it was cool to chat with all these guests. I've got their words rolling around in my head, and I was taking out the trash. I don't really like taking out the trash. I was feeling kind of, kind of grumpy about it because, you know, it's smelly. I have to bend over into awkward corners and pull out things, and sometimes there's a little bit of leaking or the bag is over, over full, and, you know, you try to pull it out, and it, the thing rips, you know, you got to open multiple doors to get to the, the thing. And then in the alley, it's overstuffed here in Chicago. Anyway, there's all sorts of little things that make this an unpleasant task for me that I don't enjoy, but I, I'm doing it. And so as I'm doing it, I'm sort of just, it, it's almost like a default mode in terms of like, there's an unpleasant stimulus for me, which just gets my brain in that sort of place. And then it's very easy for me to find more things that are unpleasant. You know, like, why are we producing so much trash in the first place? You know, should we have, when are we going to run out of landfills? <laughs> you know, whatever. So I'm just sort of spiraling in this, in this zone. And I was just sort of thinking about, about Chris Croft here and, and, and choosing happiness. And in terms of like, you know what? I'm just sort of going with the flow of a stimulus, but I don't have to. It's sort of like being grumpy was the easier choice like the default choice, but not the what I really wanted. It's kind of like, I don't really want to eat Pringles for dinner, <laughs> but Pringles are what's right here. It's easy. So maybe I'll, I'll eat that. But it, just as we can choose what we eat, so too I think we can choose our emotions. And, and just as 
some things are easier to eat, some emotions are easier to feel based on uh, just sort of the, the previous stimulus, but we, we have that, that choice. So I'm going to exert a little bit of effort and, and choose happiness here. And sure enough, I was able to, to find some cool things like, hey, you know what? It's nice that it's warming up a little bit. It's not freezing cold as I'm out here. I don't have to have a super big jacket. I can enjoy that. Hey, it's nice that there's not a sheet of ice here as I'm walking to uh, put the trash. I can just sort of walk back and forth on this little sidewalk near my backyard and, and enjoy that and feel like I'm, I'm out of the house and, and not in that oppressive cold. And, and I've actually sort of enjoyed uh, that uh, five to 10 minute period of taking out the trash and then just uh, walking a little bit in the backyard and having a breath. So anywho, I think Chris is dead on in terms of we we choose the emotion. It's just that some things are more natural, convenient, and easy to choose. But as our neuroscience guests would, would say, hey, as we do more of getting in the groove of the happy stuff, then those become all the more natural and less difficult to, to choose and switch over to. Well, anyway, that was a long reflection. Again, I think it's philosophical, but uh, I think well worth pondering for a moment there. The, the default pathways and the choices we make in terms of how we feel things and then the ripple effects that ha- has for us. So anyway, I found this very thought-provoking with Chris, as you could tell. I hope you did as well. The show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP650. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.